One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. Well, good morning, One Church family. It is so good to be with you, to be together today, wherever you're at, whether you're joining us in house church or joining us perhaps from home with your family, with some friends. I hope you are having an awesome, awesome day. And I know today uh, we are not all together in one room, uh, but I'm just reminded of John's words in the book of Revelation chapter one. He says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And if you know the context of the book of Revelation, he's actually uh, been banished onto the Isle of Patmos. He's actually stuck in, we could say, quarantine, isolation. But in that moment, on the Lord's day, which was Sunday, the moment the church would gather to worship the Lord, to celebrate uh, the, the good news of the gospel, uh, in that moment, he said, I, I'm on the Isle of Patmos but I'm in the Spirit. And I hope that's the case for you today. I look forward to the moment that we can be all together, uh, not just on a weekly basis, but really every day. We're so excited that we're moving towards a wonderful season, a wonderful future of having a building of our own that we can gather not just on Sundays, but we can gather for morning prayer. We can gather for uh, house church Uh, groups on the property. We can gather for classes and prayer meetings and all of the things that we long to do. Uh, But really, the the beauty and the power of our gatherings is not just being in the room, but being in the Spirit. And so even as we are unable to be all together in the room together, I hope that we are learning and we are discovering uh, and we are really Uh, solidifying that foundation of learning how to be in the Spirit. Even as we gather again next Sunday, I want to encourage you now just to come with expectation of being in the Spirit. You know, sometimes we can be in the room, but not in the Spirit. We can be in the room, but our heart, our mind can be uh, a million miles away. But John says, I was on the Isle of Patmos, but I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And so I hope wherever you're at, if you're in house church this morning, I hope that you are sensing the presence of God. Maybe you've taken a few moments of worship, of prayer, just to posture your heart uh, ready and open for God to speak to you today. And even in that place, we are together. Even though we're not in the same room, we're in the same Spirit today. And I believe that God wants to move today. Well, if you have your Bible, why don't you grab it with me today and turn to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up on the the thought and the teaching from last week and just take some time today uh, to read, uh, to reflect, and then to respond in some questions to this teaching that I shared with you last week. And of course, if you're just joining us for the first time today, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount in a series that we're calling Counterculture. And um, I know that uh, we often hear the term culture thrown around um, in, in a lot of different contexts, but culture is really the character of a group of people in a place. Uh, if you think about, you know, traveling to another culture overseas, you experience that, that um, character of the people. 
uh, even here in America, uh, different parts of town, maybe going into a different restaurant, a, a different environment you experience, even within our homes. We all have our own family culture. And what we're talking about is really the recognition that God wants us to be a counterculture. Uh, not that we are uh, counter or against the world around us, but that we are distinct from the world around us. That uh, we are a that we are a culture, a community that reflects the culture of heaven on earth, and uh, that's what we are talking about. Being that counterculture, we're looking at this beautiful teaching, Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, today, I want to pick up in Matthew chapter five and uh, review and just reflect and then give you a chance to respond to this teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, and Jesus starts off by saying this. He, he's, he's just talked about the law. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, Jesus is starting off by quoting the Old Testament, by quoting uh, a phrase really right out of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And he's speaking to the Jewish culture, and he's saying, you've heard it said, you're familiar with this. This is a, a phrase that you all know, you shall not murder. But then he goes on to say, but I say to you, and that's actually a phrase that Jesus will repeat in the passages to come. You've heard it said, and he quotes the Old Testament, uh, the teaching of the law. And he then goes on to say, but I say to you, and what Jesus is doing is really elevating the requirement. He's elevating the requirement. The requirement of the law uh, in the Old Covenant was all about externals. And uh, it, it said, you do, shall not murder. But Jesus is actually going to go deeper. He's going to go to the heart. He's going to go not just to the action of murder, but the, the intent that motivates the action. Because ultimately, the law in itself could never bring the fullness of what God wanted to do. The Bible says in the New Testament that it was a shadow of things to come. A shadow is not the substance. If I see your shadow, I kind of get a, a picture or a figure of what you look like, but it's not who you are. It does reveal some characteristics about you, but it's not the fullness of who you are. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've seen the shadow, do not murder, but I'm saying the substance is something deeper than that. And he reveals that in verse 22. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means uh, literally, it means empty head. So it'd be like saying, whoever says to his brother, stupid, shall be in danger of the council. That's standing before the uh, ruling body of the Jews. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell's fire. Now, this is a, a very strong warning that Jesus is giving to us about the dangers of anger. He goes on to say this, that, that we... Um, that, that anger can ultimately lead us to prison. And he says this, that we will not be let out until we pay the last penny. And so what Jesus is saying is the real danger is not just in murder. Yes, everybody knows murder is wrong, but the real danger is actually in being angry. 
And out of anger, you can become imprisoned and there will be a cost to our anger. You know, as we read that, uh, the, the reality is that we live in a world today that is filled with anger. Uh, that's not new. That goes back to even Jesus's time, but it is continuing today. Sometimes we like to think, you know, well, we're so modern. We've evolved so much. We've progressed so much that the Bible no longer speaks to us. Well, I, I want to say to you, uh, open our eyes, <laughs> turn on the news, scroll your social media feed. You will find that anger is is as in vogue as ever. It is the fashion of our day to be angry. In fact, it's actually become a pastime. Some of you are familiar with rage rooms. Those are rooms where people go just to let out their anger. And um, maybe it would feel good to break something. I don't know. But Jesus is actually saying that if we, if we don't address the issue of anger, There is a cost to our lives. There's a cost to our relationships. There's a cost to our nation. The anger that is simmering in our nation today has a cost to our nation. It has a cost to our world. It has a cost to our families. And so Jesus says this, therefore, if you bring, in verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. In other words, he's saying, I care more about your relationship with your brother than I do about your religious performance. I care more about that relationship. I care more about your right relationship with your brother than I do about the religious performance of worship. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves our worship. He actually goes on to say, "Bring then bring your gift to the altar. But he's saying, "I, I care more about your relationships. You see, relationships are the true test of our religion. The true test of our right relationship with God is our relationship with one another. And so he says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And that's the key statement in this whole passage. Be reconciled. Don't be angry be reconciled. Don't allow anger to simmer in your heart, but I want you to go to your brother and be reconciled. That word reconciled or reconciliation carries the idea of two people who have been enemies, who have been at odds with one another, uh, moving away from one another in anger, but now are turning towards one another and are being reconciled, being restored in relationship. And Jesus is bringing this out because this uh, phrase of reconciliation is at the very core of the gospel. To receive the gospel is to be reconciled. And so Jesus is saying this, I want you to be a culture not filled with anger, but I want you to be a culture of reconciliation. Or as I said last week, we as God's people, we as kingdom people should be a culture of reconciliation even in this age of rage. And so to be reconciled, there's really three dimensions to this reconciliation that God wants us to experience. Number one is to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to God. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Really, all reconciliation begins by being reconciled to God. Because every other attempt at reconciliation only deals with the surface level issues. It doesn't get down to the issues of our heart. Legislation and social programs can try to address the issues of our day, but only Jesus can transform our hearts. Where does anger come from? It comes from our heart. Where does racism come from? It comes from our hearts. You see, there can be laws against racism, but, race, but, but those laws can't change people's hearts, and that will only manifest in other ways. There can be laws against selfishness, uh, against violence. But what Jesus is saying is that it all comes out of the heart, and only God can transform a heart. So our hearts become transformed first when we're reconciled with God. Now, here's what I want us to understand and I believe Jesus wants us to understand the reconciliation to God. Yes, there is a, a, an initial experience of being reconciled to God, or as Jesus calls it, being born again. We've got a new life. And when we are born again, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're reconciled to God, that we, we are uh, in right standing with God. And there is nothing like that. There's nothing that compares to that. But I think what Jesus is wanting us to understand is that's not just a one-time thing. That's actually a lifelong commitment to be reconciled to God. Even in this passage, he's, he's really referring to that in the act of worship. He, he's saying you're bringing your gift to God. You're entering into the presence of God. You're entering into relationship with God. And to live a life of reconciliation, to be a person of reconciliation, to be a culture of reconciliation, we must first be reconciled to God on a daily basis. The question I want to ask you today is what does it look like for you to be reconciled to God on a daily basis? Not just one time. Some of us may say, well, I got saved, you know, on this year, on this date. And that's a wonderful thing. But what about today? What, what does it look like for you to be reconciled to God today? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have relationship with God, but it does mean that on a daily basis, we need to go back and reconnect with God. It's kind of like in, in marriage. You know, my wife and I, um, almost 17 years ago, we got married. We entered into a covenant relationship, and um, we have been married Ever since, we've never stopped being married. In fact, I can't hardly get my ring off my finger anymore. Um, but we do need to strengthen the connection. We've got to, on a regular basis, go back and, you know, reconcile, reconnect. That's what date night is or walks in the neighborhood or conversations over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea where we just sit and we share our hearts with one another. And it's in that moment where we go, you know what? I remember why we got married, because I love you, because I want to spend my life with you. And I just love being with you. Now, I wish we could sit eternally over a cup of tea and just connect with one another, but we have life. We have to live life. We've got kids. We've got responsibilities. There's lots of things that have to be done, but it all comes out of that place of relationship. And the same is true with God. That, that daily or maybe even hourly um, 
place of being reconciled in relationship. That practically means this, that you need to have, and I need to have, a daily time with God, daily time with the Lord. Again, that's not to to be saved, but it's to keep the flow of his life, of his love, filling your heart. That's what Paul calls being filled with the Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, that's a, a command that he gives, be filled with the Spirit. And it's a present continuous imperative, which means it's not just a one-time thing. It's like your car. You didn't just put gas in your car one time. You've got to continue putting it in. And for us to be people that are a culture of reconciliation, we've got to be filled with the love of God. You see, we can love like the world loves. How does the world love? The world loves conditionally. And we, in our own human nature, I don't have a hard time loving people like me. In fact, if you agree with me, and you look like me, and you like the same things that I like, and you talk the same way that I talk, it's very easy to love you in the natural, because I love me, and you love you too. That's just natural love. That's human love. But what is supernatural love? What is God's love is when I can love people that are not like me. When I can love people that in the natural, I may say, you know what, we have nothing in common. We don't like the same things. We've got different backgrounds. We've got different experiences, but we love God. And because we love God, we love each other. That's why it's so powerful for us to be together in the context of church, whether it's in house church or whether it's gathering with a a group of friends for a time of prayer or whether it's in our Sunday gatherings. It's so powerful to experience and to encounter the presence of God together. And that's really the context where the second dimension of reconciliation begins to manifest. And that is not just reconciliation to God, but reconciliation to each other, to one another. And obviously, we see that is so important in Jesus' mind when he says this. If you're in the middle of worship and you remember your brother has something against you, I want you to stop your worship. I want you to leave your gift. In other words, it would be like this. Get up from church, and I want you to go make a phone call. I want you to go have a conversation. I want you to go your way. And what Jesus is saying, notice this. He says that I want you to take the initiative. I want you to be the reconciler. Don't wait for someone else to come to you. And he even says, if your brother has something against you, he doesn't say, you have something against your brother. He says, if you remember your brother has something against you, you take initiative. And that's really what it means to be reconciled to one another is that we recognize because God has taken initiative towards us, we take initiative towards one another. We don't have the mindset of, well, that's not my problem. If they're angry, if they're upset, if they're hurt, that's not my problem. Because the love of God says, I'm, uh, he's the one that pursues his enemies. He's the one that pursues us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. And so that means this, that we need to take the initiative. And, and here's a question I want you to ask today, or I want you to answer. I want to ask you, is there a relationship where there's a rift in your life? Is there someone that even as I talk about this, you go, oh, it's him, it's her, it's them. You've allowed life and you've allowed circumstances or maybe you've allowed the situations in our culture to create a rift in relationship. And here's what I wanna ask, what would it look like 
to be reconciled to them. What would it look like? It doesn't mean that you're going to have to agree, but it does mean that you're going to have to initiate. We're not going to agree on everything. You know, the day and age that we live in, there's a lot of areas of disagreement. But what we do find is a place of agreement in Jesus. And ultimately, you know, even as a church, our place of reconciliation can never be found in natural things. It's got to be in the Spirit. It's got to be in Christ. And, um, you know, one of the most powerful things that we can do is to pray together. To pray together. You know, the Bible says on the day of Pentecost, they were all in one place, in one accord. In one accord. That word means, the original word is homothumadon. Homo means the same. Thumadon is where we get the word thermometer. It means temperature. In other words, they all had the same temperature. They were all on fire for Jesus. They had all turned up the temperature of their own spiritual passion. And it was in that place, the Bible says, suddenly the Holy Spirit came. Out of that place of being brought together, different ethnicities, different political persuasions and perspectives, different backgrounds, different uh, men and women. They all came together. And, And I believe prayer is essential and corporate prayer is essential in order to be a culture of reconciliation in a day of rage. That's why prayer meetings and praying together is a non-negotiable. It's essential. It should actually be at the top of our list of priorities. You know, we have a weekly prayer meeting on Zoom. And I know sometimes we can think, well, uh, that's prayer meetings are not my thing. But I want you to know it's Jesus's thing. And I know there's never a time that works for everybody, but I want to encourage you to prioritize every opportunity we can to pray together. In your house church today, I want to encourage you, pray together. Why? Because when you pray together, you begin to enter into the spirit together and you begin to supersede the the natural things that can bring us into disagreement. You know, um, uh, even among uh, friends, you can have different perspectives. Uh, um, Between a husband and wife, there can be areas of disagreement. Um, But when you pray together, there's a unity that supersedes the natural. I'll tell you a little example. This morning, uh, Jen and I had a conversation about milk preference. She likes to buy almond milk, and I like to buy whole milk. And if I think about why she buys almond milk, and she thinks about why I buy whole milk, we can just drift away. Now, I know that's a silly example, but it's just an issue of preference. But when we focus on our preference, it will always lead us into disunity. It will always break down the relationship. But I want to encourage you to be a person of prayer over a person of personal preference because that will bring us into the place of reconciliation. So maybe for you, maybe you can't go to a person physically, but maybe you can in prayer. Maybe that person, you need to begin to pray for them that God would give you that heart. So number one, it's reconciled. God? What does that look like for you? How are you reconciled to God on a daily basis? Number two, reconciled to one another. Is there a person that you need to go to today? Is there a conversation that you need to have? I want to encourage you, if you do, share that with your house church. Ask them to hold you accountable this week that you'll have that conversation. And then lastly, the third dimension of reconciliation is that we are reconcilers in the world. 
that out of the right relationship with God, the right relationship with one another, we become agents of reconciliation in the world. Paul says it this way, that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. That means this, that that we are to be people that, that don't push people into polar opposites, but we are to be people that bring people together. And again, we all have different perspectives, different opinions. There's nothing wrong with being passionate about your perspective on something. But ultimately, if we want to be agents of reconciliation in the world, we have to have a passion that supersedes our preference, and that is a passion for the kingdom of God. I know right now in the world we live in, there's a lot of conversation about comfort and my comfort. Am I comfortable with this? Am I comfortable with that? Am I comfortable getting the shot? Am I comfortable not getting the shot? Am I comfortable wearing a mask? Am I comfortable not wearing a mask? And I'm not saying that those things don't matter, but as followers of Jesus, we have a commitment greater than our comfort, and that's a commitment to the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you to be a person that is an intentional reconciler in the world. I mentioned it last week on social media. We've got a great opportunity to be an agent of reconciliation, to love people. Let me tell you, the world is going crazy. They're losing their minds. Relationships are breaking down. Friendships are breaking down. Families are breaking down, all because of disagreements. And again, I'm not saying that we can't have a personal preference or a personal conviction even on that. But ultimately, we need to have a conviction for unity, a conviction for reconciliation. So I want to encourage you to be a person that makes that commitment to the ministry of reconciliation. You know, one of the ways that I've done that, I've made a commitment that I'm not posting anything political on social media, or maybe I would say it this way, nothing partisan, nothing that divides people politically, because I've got friends on one end of the spectrum and friends on the other end of the spectrum. And and I feel this, that yes, I have opinions, but people are more important than opinions. So I've made the conviction. I'm not saying that you have to do this, but I would encourage you to consider it. I've made the conviction. I'm not going to use social media as a place to push my opinions. I'll promote Jesus. I'll promote the gospel. I'll promote the love of God. I'll post cute pictures of my kids. but I'm ultimately going to use it to try to build other people up, to try to love people. Not because I can't have a preference, but I've got a commitment greater than my comfort. You know, I think about uh, Paul's encouragement to Timothy. Timothy wanted to go on mission with Paul, and Paul said, you know what, if you want to go on mission with me, you need to be circumcised first. Now, Paul had actually spent a major portion of Scripture saying why circumcision was not essential for salvation. But now Timothy wants to go reach other people. And Paul says, you know what? This is not going to be comfortable. This is not going to be easy. But in order to reach more people, I want to encourage you to be circumcised. Or in other words, I I want to encourage you to lay down your comfort for the purpose of God's kingdom. And that ultimately is the call that every one of us have as followers of Jesus to live not just for my comfort and not for my kingdom, but for his kingdom. And so I want to encourage you today to think about, to pray about, maybe even talk among your house church. And even in the context of house church, that that's an opportunity for us to be uh, agents of reconciliation. Don't bring politics or partisan perspective 
up, but focus on Jesus that brings us together into the place of reconciliation. That in this age of rage, we would be a counterculture of reconciliation. So let me pray for you as we prepare to go. Father, thank you. Lord, that you have loved us when we were your enemies, when we were away from you. And God, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, give us the ministry of reconciliation. God, I pray you'd help us to know what it looks like on a daily basis to be reconciled with you. I pray, Father, for those that maybe need to have a hard conversation. I pray you'd give them wisdom, give them grace. And God, I pray that we as a church would know how to walk circumspectly in this time that we live in. Father, that we would not be people that add to the polarization, but that we would be people that are committed to the ministry of reconciliation. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If you're in house church, I want to encourage you to take some time, talk about this, pray about it with one another. Also, don't forget next Sunday, we're going to be back at the community center. I'm going to be speaking a message on becoming a culture of commitment in a day of convenience. So I hope you'll join us. God bless you. Have an awesome week, church. I love you so much. Can't wait to see you next Sunday.